and I showed them Cambodia on the map. They said, how are you going to get there, son? And look how far it is from the United States. I said, well, I'm going to save up and get a ticket. It's about $1,000. And they said, $1,000 is going to take you how long to save up $1,000? I said, it'll probably take me from now until December. And so that some of the boys in the classroom said, oh, I can make $1,000 tonight selling cocaine. I said, yeah, but that could put me in jail and I don't want to go to jail. Hey, everybody, it's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. Every week we do a little something to invite more freedom and joy and an opening in our mind, body and spirit. This week, I'm talking with an artist, Sana Musasama. I really love interviewing artists because as you probably have heard me say before, I think artists are the canaries in the coal mine on the ethical and moral evolution of a society. They tend to be so sensitive that they see what needs to be seen before the rest of us and bring it to the forefront and play a really vital role in our collective evolution. And Sana is no exception. In her 70s now, she calls herself a clay artist, a humanitarian, and a globetrotter. Her work and passion center around the lives of little girls that she says are her mentors as she travels the world. Her work largely talks about their ability to live full, healthy lives without the burdens of war, child marriage, sex trafficking, displacement, or harmful ritualistic practices like excision. So that is all well and good. But my hope for you is that you listen to this episode and like me, will be so moved. I think I cried five times listening to her tell her stories. They're so simple, and she's so tender, and yet so very focused on making positive choices and positive change. It's a super moving conversation and covers a lot on what it means to live a purposeful life and to create an act in the world that leaves it slightly more beautiful. So let's begin. Sana Musasama. For people who don't know who you are, would you give them a little background? Yes, I'm Sana Musasama. I am a native New Yorker. I live in the house I grew up in, in St. Albans, Queens. My studio is in the backyard um, that I built probably 25 years ago and never really used it as much as I wanted to until I retired two years ago from Hunter College, where I taught for 25 years. I am still teaching in my neighborhood at Jamaica Art Center, where I teach children. And I also teach at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, teaching non-art majors, which is also very, very exciting to teach. I teach artists most of the time, but to teach non-artists is equally as wonderful. I call myself in my final chapter of life, my sitting years. I'm going to be 71 next week, and I'm looking forward to writing, more traveling, more activism and looking at the world with a new lens. I'm very moved by the sense of place, of, of being in one place and committing there and knowing the needs of that place. So how is it, you said it was different but rewarding. What's different for you between teaching children, artists, and non-artists? How would you characterize that? With the non-artists, they tend to take more risk mm. because they're not invested in the product that they're making. So they tend to create with failure, which turns out to be really wonderful and a gift. And they're not intimidated by right or wrong. Hmm. When my artist students want to get it right, the right time, the right moment, everything's measured, they're under stress, they're competitive. My non-art majors just don't care. 
they're taking art for the first time and maybe the last time, and they're tremendous risk takers. And teaching children is just an open gift. I just put the clay on the table and I just watch them. They don't need instructions necessarily. I guide them with how to use the tools properly, but they've got all the ideas in the world. So with them, I'm like watching little gems when I'm teaching them. There's one little boy that I have named Luke who came to me at four and then didn't come back to me until nine. And I treasure him in my classroom. And I noticed when I was teaching a workshop uh, recently that I'm rolling out slabs where he does it. Normally I would take a rolling pin and roll, flip, roll, flip. He just pounds. Now I pound. <laughs> That's Luke. <laughs> That's Luke. <laughs> you're, you're, so you're teaching each other. Teaching each other. Well, you know, I was just talking to Geneva and saying, you can't teach without being taught. You cannot. My students have taught me equally as much as what I've given them. They've been a gift. So how does that work for you? Um, so you're both a professional artist. You're a teacher in this non-transactional flow. And then do you also have that fear of risk? Or how do you mitigate the risk-taking aversion in your own art? Well, I'm very much a risk-taker. I enter cultures and places where I don't fit. I erase boundaries. I understand limitations. So I think I've always been pretty much of a risk taker. I grew up in a household, a crowded household with five sisters. In order to get attention from my mother and father, I had to be a real big risk taker, do things that were totally unorthodox to get attention. <laughs> so I think it's always been pretty much a part of my nature. I'm a solo traveler. I'll go someplace that I've never been before. I may know a little bit of the language. I may not. I go to markets, meet women, get insulated, get powerful, and step out into the world. So I think I'm. my nature is to take risk. Okay, I want to just pause on that, you guys. Meet women, get insulated, and get powerful. I mean, just like just that alone, you could totally unpack that, particularly in the sequence. And we've said, what does it mean to get insulated? What does that mean? Well, for example, there's a market in Cambodia that I was scared to go in by myself as a tourist, not knowing the language. So I walked by two or three days and peeked at the opening. And then on that fifth day, I said, Sana, go in, go in. And I thought to buy a big piece of bread and break off crumbs and lead a path so that I could get back out, which was ridiculous. <laughs> and so I just said, go in. So I entered. And when I walked into the market, which must have been at least a thousand people, the market went silent because here I was very, very different dress different, different coloring, different hair, and tourists don't go in this market. And so I got became very, very shy, and I walked back out. But then I went right back the next day, and then the next day. On the fourth day, they're yelling my name. How did they know my name? They watched me. They watched where I went to. They went to the hotel. They asked, who was that little girl with all those colors on and got my name. The next day, it was Sister Sana. Come here. Sister Sana, sit here. Let me do your nails. That's what I mean by insulated. They empowered me. They hugged me. They loved me. They brought me into their lives. Mm, so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. So, so you're going to Cambodia. Can you um, let us in on your activism and how that birthed in you? Fifteen years ago, I read an article in Glamour magazine, and it was called Women of the Year Award. 
a woman actually was reading it on the train and I was reading it over her shoulder and she got so annoyed like she should have because I can't stand it when people start breathing on my neck and reading what I'm reading. But when she got off the train, she hissed at me and I turned and she handed me the magazine and I read about seven women changing the world in big, big ways. And one of them was Somali mom. And it was her story that I actually inhaled and carried home with me. And when I got home, I was sick to my stomach having read her story. I got on the computer and wrote her and didn't know what I was going to say, but I started by saying, I'm sorry for what happened to your childhood. She was abducted into the sex industry as a young child, as a young adult. And she wrote back maybe hours later and I explained to her I was an artist. And I also said, what can I do? She wrote back a few hours later and said, come to Cambodia. And that began it. So at the time I was working in a felony program with youth between the ages of 14 and 21 who had committed their first felony. I took a globe into the classroom the next day and I showed them Cambodia and I read to them the article in Glamour magazine. I wanted the population that I was teaching in New York City were predominantly black, Latino, African, and also indigenous people. I wanted them to know that injustices happen all over the world and to everybody. And I didn't want them to only grow up thinking that it happened to them because they were brown people. Yes, a lot of it is true. It does happen because they profile. But I want to release that from the 14-year-old little heart that they're going to walk through life as a brown person and totally be victimized. Showing them Somali and Somali's girls who are light-skinned with straight hair and keen features was cracking open a shell in their hearts that injustices are everywhere. I then went to the art therapist who was working there, who was a friend of mine and said, I'm going to Cambodia in December. I think then it was March. And I said, I don't know that I can do this by myself, working with girls that were sold into an industry where they've been violated. I said, I see when I'm having trouble with the young people, you can come in and just sue them out for me when they're ready to throw me out a window. <laughs> I said, would you come to Cambodia with me? I can't pay your airfare, but I can pay for hotel. And her name was Jessica. And she said, Sana, you want me to come? I said, I need you to come. And she came along with me. And we went what first year after I talked to all the population and told them about what I was going to do. And I showed them Cambodia on the map. They said, how are you going to get there, son? And look how far it is from the United States. I said, well, I'm going to save up and get a ticket. It's about $1,000. And they said, $1,000 is going to take you how long to save up $1,000? I said, it'll probably take me from now until December. And so that some of the boys in the classroom said, oh, I can make $1,000 tonight selling cocaine. I said, yeah, but that could put me in jail and I don't want to go to jail. And then they, they, they back up from that kind of comment. And so what the girls did in the program is they made dolls for me to carry to Cambodia as a gift. And they said, Sana, they were never little girls. I said, no. They were never lucky enough to be little girls. So I took their dolls with me to Cambodia, and then I went to an art supply store, and I brought about 50 dolls that were just little cotton dolls to take to the girls in Cambodia to make dolls for them. So that began it. And then when I was there, and I met the organization, and I went to three safe houses. I call them safe houses, but they're really shelters where the girls live. I went to each one of them, and after I spent my third day working with over 100 girls, I looked up at Jessica and said, 
I'm coming back here for the rest of my life. And that's what started it. And I've gone every year since then. And it stopped at 14 years because of the pandemic. So I haven't been last December or this December. But I did develop the apron project about eight years ago. And that developed because there's a large population of girls that don't get rescued when they're young, like 10, 8, 7. They get rescued at 14, 17, 21. There's training there for them, but they have missed out on really a formal education. I began to worry about them when they were going to be released from the safe houses, that they might not quite succeed like a 9 or 10 or 11-year-old who's able to go back to school. These girls at 14, 17 can't enter. There is no such things as remedial. So they get training in in fish farming, self-defense, language, math, but it's not enough. Hairdressing, it's not enough. So with that population, I began to focus on a project called the Apron Project that would be a supplement to the income that they already make, that would keep them safe, that it would never be a consideration, that they would enter a brothel to pay a bill. I would like to say how moved I am by your stories and the link between the way you speak to the incarcerated youth and the empathy and the heart for seeing them as whole people beyond how society would label someone and then going across the earth and doing the same thing. Like you just seem to speak with this clarity of encountering the soul that's in front of you and, and loving them. It's so beautiful. No, thank you. That was so beautifully said. <laughs> so beautifully said. So the Apron Project is on Etsy, right? If people are listening and they want to support it, they can go to Etsy and find you. Well, the thing is now there are no more aprons because it's been two years and I don't. they're all stuck in Cambodia. I haven't been there to get them. What it is is I go every year and I bring back a hundred. I haven't been in two years. So now I have maybe five or six. I'm going to actually close the Etsy store because the apron, their image there, I no longer have. Over the last two years, I've sold them all. Well, hopefully we can get those girls working again and doing those things. That also seems like a creative outlet for them. It is a creative outlet, but you know something, they are working, uh, Christine, every December 15th, I send $2,000 to Cambodia and I send the girls to the markets to buy the fabric, to get the thread, to get additional parts to the sewing machines. And I have two girls that are the managers. They sit down and they get all the cloth. They cut all the patterns with newspaper and each girl gets about 40 to 50 aprons. So the aprons are still being made because I made a promise that I would never abandon their lives. So just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean they can't eat. So the money goes and the aprons are being made. The problem is they can't, there's no post office now. There's no land travel. Mm. I I can't get them. So we're going to have a whole bunch at the other end of this pandemic. Hundreds, but now they've (laughs) gone into computer bags, handbags, everything. Because I just send an image of something I love and say, girls, make this. And one thing that was really beautiful, not this December, but last December, they called me, Cambodia's hours are exactly 12 hours difference from ours. So 12 o'clock for us is 12 o'clock midnight. So they called me about 11 o'clock at night and I was in bed and all girls were gathered in the studio that we work in and they were all on the floor knitting and sewing and laughing at me and I was fussing, put your mask on. And then all of a sudden I fell asleep and I woke up six and a half hours late and I said, oh no, I miss my girls. And I clicked the phone and there they were 
all standing with their hands going like this, with their aprons on their arms and saying, <laughs> we got it, we got it. It was so healing. Six hours later, they all had their bundles. They were getting on their motorbikes and they were going back home. And it just was something that jump-started me during the pandemic when I was so depressed, so unhappy, and so lonesome. It was wonderful. Their smiles. Mm. Talk to me about your ceramic work. Well, my work has been or continues to be about my travels, moving through the world um, and telling or retelling the stories that I see that are really collective stories. So I've been working for 45 years. My birthday's next week. I'm not going to say how old I'm going to be. <laughs> but my work is about what I see and what I want to share with my world. And my world is here in the United States. So I've made things about girl soldiers, girls that are abducted into the civil wars to fight in, in the countries that they live in, how they're drugged, lured and tricked to murder and to kill. So my work is about them, girl soldiers. Another series is about the unknown, unnamed. I never saw mass burials until I went to Cambodia. When you walk into a field that's acres and acres long of bodies that once were, parts of the skull, parts of the pelvic, just all scattered around the ground. So I did a series, The Unknown, Unnamed, because these people weren't given the dignity of a burial site or even their name on a tombstone. They were murdered and just scattered on the earth. So that's another series of mine. I lived on the continent, so my work has been about female excision, a ritualistic surgery that has lasted over 7,000 years old, that is performed on girls. It's illegal in many parts of the world now, but sometimes practice. So my work has been about their stories. My work has been about foot binding, another ritual that women have endured and suffered. And a lot of it has to do with beauty, acceptance, marriagehood, class. So my work has been about that. I'm working on a series now about my mother, who died 47 years ago, who went blind in my teens and was trying to learn Braille. So my work is about her now, and, and she was a domestic. And so I found her old aprons, and I'm recontextualizing them with stories that she told me and my sisters growing up. So my work, in a sense, is about selfhood, but it's also about worldhood as well. As well, I wouldn't call it purely autobiographical, because it's really about everyone's story. Well, the difference between selfhood and worldhood is a, a minor one. They exist on a continuum in a way because each one of our stories is making up the world. Yes. I mean, any any one of these topics, uh, girl soldiers or female excision, or what does it mean to live the life of a domestic and to be on the inside of other people's lives and live it all in service, any one of these could be the subject of a, a long interview, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're just also so rich and deep. The foot binding, if, if people haven't seen what foot binding looks like, uh, I remember a friend of mine who had been living in Hong Kong, she uh, and got married over there, she had given us these vintage Chinese foot binding slippers, these embroidered slippers. And it almost looks as if you have an ankle and then no foot. Your foot is made so small, you're hobbled so that you cannot walk, which means that you cannot work. So it was a strange way of a status symbol. Very much so. But, you know, when it was first practiced, it was practiced with the empress wives, women who sat and looked beautiful all day, who did not work who did not walk, but when the peasant class or when common people saw how beautiful they were adorned and how their lives were and how they sat all beautifully, they 
begin to bind their feet in an attempt to gather that beauty. And so they would bind their feet. With the Cultural Revolution, it was outlawed through Mao and communism because everybody's equal and women must work and a bound foot woman can't walk properly. So they actually had police that were the bound police that would beat women to get the bandages off because the bandages keep the foot oppressed so it won't grow back or won't open up because it's completely compressed that only the toe is there. All the rest of the toes are smashed flat underneath the foot. When peasant women didn't shrink their feet to three and a half inches because they could not get to the fields and work. But it's a, a kind of mixed element there with beauty and also being suppressed are controlled. It's the two that are working in combination with each other. So there was something aesthetically beautiful about a bound foot for, to, a, to a man, something very, very uh, erotic about it. So we're back to uh, control and repression and eroticism, which also ties into the female excision story. Exactly. I remember being in West Africa in my early 20s and going to the river to bathe where all women would bathe. And what women would do to have privacy is if a man were on the other side, is they would just gently cover up their genital area, but never their breasts. And I just remember when we would go to, you'd lather yourself up and you'd squat to throw water over your shoulder. And I just remember looking up into a woman's private parts and she had been circumcised and looking and saying, wow, she's so neat down there. Not like me, but in my 24 years of age, her private parts were neat and pretty to me until I realized what she went through to get like that. They just cut them off. Yeah. I'm, I mean, we have folds and crevices and we're full and hair. There it's silky smooth. And with those eight or nine beads that she inherits that go around her waist, she was stunningly beautiful to me at 24 years of age. It was beautiful. So I can see how in a cultural sense that is considered beautiful in comparison to how we must look in comparison to her. It was neat, completely neat. But she has no sensation. I can't imagine that she can have any, but I've had women fuss with me, stay out of my panties. I'm having orgasms when the season changes because the scar tissue shrinks and expands. So I won't know that because I have never had that ritual done. But 3,000 nerves, I've been educated, 3,000 nerves there, they no longer are there if you've been excised in a certain way. There are many, many forms of female excision, some extremely radical and some incredibly, incredibly mild. And I do have a friend who lived here who would have considered having her daughter circumcised because she said she was just pricked on both sides of her clitoris. And that was it. Nothing was removed. That America has made it very ugly and evil and that it isn't something that it's done to us because we're hated. That there's so many, many years of and thinking about how it was a system of protection. So I was careful when I began to do the work that I read the books of African women and not the books of Westerners, because I felt that I needed to know not one single story, but multiples of stories and hear multiple voices. And so I read many, many, many books about it and have come up with many interpretations about it and made that work. This ritual of circumcision no longer needs to exist, but it's beyond cutting. 
It is an education for a girl who will never sit in a classroom like we do. She learns to read, to write, to speak her mother tongue, how to hunt, how to have self-defense, how to build a hut. That's all of her training in those four months. And the cutting is the last few days. My argument is keep the ritual, stop the cutting. It's an education that a girl will get that lives in the bush. This is such a meta story on how you cannot take your values and your perspective from where you are born and project them out onto someone else. There's some faith and trust in humanity that all things have arisen for a reason and they might have gone too far or they might have gotten extreme, but that there's something in them that originally was honorable. And this curiosity you're exhibiting is beautiful to me. Like that is such a, a willingness to step beyond your own cultural conditioning. Let's talk about your mom and the apron project and how the aprons of your mother relate to the aprons of the women in Cambodia. Do you find it surprising for you that they're interweaving at the same time? No, actually, um, they're not at all. I remember as as a 13-year-old being ashamed that my mother was a domestic, that she cleaned other people's homes. And I'm in the house I grew up in. And just eight blocks in another direction was a very wealthy neighborhood. And my mother would take us around the corner to PS15, drop us off, and then she would walk to their homes. And um, I was ashamed of my mother's work. And I fussed at her at times about cleaning. And my father did the same thing. He would say to her, Sadie, I make a good living for us. You don't have to do this. And she would say, but it gives me freedom. It puts money in my own pocket. I can send Sana to art camp. I can send Vicky to music lessons. I don't have to ask you for everything. Please let me have something that's me. She says, their homes never get dirty. They have maids, they have lawn people. She says, I go there, put the laundry in, and I sit on the couch and I look at TV. She says, I never can look at TV at home. I have five children and you and an extended family. She says, I dream in their homes. They travel the world. I see the objects they have. I listen to their stories. She says, it's an education for me. And once I fussed with her and she just sat me on the edge of the bed and said, let mommy do this. Mommy enjoys this. It's an honest living. Let mommy do it. I loved my mother deeply. And so I honored her and I never fussed anymore. But one day she came home from work kind of sad. And my father asked her what it was. And she said the family that she worked for wanted her to wear a uniform so that she looked like the cooks, that she looked like the landscaper, that she looked like the mechanic. And it was not a pretty outfit. And so the lady gave it to her and she brought it home. And so my father said, I told you, you don't have to do this work. And she said, I told you, this is work. It's freedom for me. And so over the weekend, my mother went up in the room and she pulled out an old Singer machine and she made a pinafore, a 1950s apron with giant sized pockets. And she made an apron. And when she walked us to school the next Monday, she had on that apron and she put on red lipstick and she put on a little high heel. And she said, okay, I'll see you at lunchtime because she would run back with our lunch to meet us because it wasn't far. And I just remember as my sisters and I ran into the schoolyard 
I turned around and I looked at my mother walking down the street with her, her tiny waistline and her full buttocks and her high cheekbones. And I was so proud of my mother who made something beautiful, who flipped something that was could have been harmful and flipped it and was going to work. She didn't yell racism. She didn't yell classism. She didn't say they were evil people. She went upstairs and made an apron. When she got to the home, the woman opened the door and looked at her apron and she says, where did you get that beautiful dress? And she said, I made it and I'll make many more if you just let me wear these. And she said, she hugged my mother and she said, I'll never make you wear a uniform. And so that's the apron story. My mother died January 3rd, 47 years ago. Whenever I travel, I take a piece of something of hers with me. I took her apron to Cambodia with me. And one day I looked at that apron in Cambodia and I said, Sana, bring the apron project here in the name of mommy. And that's how it all started. That's just how it started. Listen, Sana, you've made me cry like five times and it's only been 30 minutes. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, l just listening to your story of her, you know, how much she valued education, being able to give you and your sisters an access to a broader, you know, arts and music or um, how her values for travel and autonomy, all the things that you're talking about, like so much of her lives in you. Mm -hmm. So lovely. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Even to be a maker. To be a maker. Yes. I sometimes am a little sad that both my parents died before they saw who I could be. They, they see. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm more of the mind of the philosophy that we're all a process in the mind of God. We're like a continuation of the prior generation. And, you know, it's like you're sort of like all, you are them. It's beautiful. So as we're pulling this uh, event together in September, you know, we're trying to magnify these kinds of stories and your voice and the voice of other women artists. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything in particular that you'd like to focus on for that week or something that's coming up for you and your work that you'd like us to really emphasize. I probably need to think about it a little bit more. I just came home from the Nsika conference in, in um, Sacramento. And I was heartbroken when I was asked, well, I was asked to go on a tour, a collector's tour, to go around to different homes to see their collections, collect people who've been collecting all their lives. And as the bus left the Hyatt Hotel and turned two corners, I was faced with blocks and blocks of tents of human beings sleeping and living in them. And I was shocked to silence. Here I was sitting on a bus going to look at art and here were people sleeping, eating, going to the bathroom on the ground. And I said nothing. And the rest of the day, I went through the tours. I went through people's homes. We had lunch together. But in the back of my head, I kept saying, you said nothing. So I went to the board meeting at Nsika, open board meeting where everybody can go. And I listened to people sit there and talk about how to make Nsika better for next year. And I listened to everyone's comments and my heart started pounding and pounding and pounding and the palms of my hands started sweating. And I said, something said, Sana, speak up. And I spoke up and said, 3,000 of us came here. 3,000 of us entitled, we're artists, we're healers, we see. How come no one's talking about all the homeless people that are right at the corner? Why are we not? 
why are we not? I said, I will not come back to Sacramento unless we do something about it. And someone said, good idea. And that ended the meeting. One person came up to me and said, Sana, we'll talk further. But just today, I got a text. And what it was, was a video of a woman just like me at Inseca who stepped up. She didn't look and turn away. She didn't feel the shame that I felt and went silent. She went to a homeless person, got information, went online and collected $300 within an hour, gave it to the woman and then posted her giving the money to that woman. That's what that woman did. She went beyond me and stepped up as a human being. I got her phone number and I called her. Next year at Inseca, I took the video, I sent it to Inseca, I sent it to everybody who I thought was in a powerful position. And I said, help me spotlight her next year at Inseca. I will write an essay about what she did, what I wasn't able to do, and what we must all do as human beings. If we can't personally do it, support the person who can. Her name is Michelle. I don't even know who she is, but I called her, we spoke, and she said, I didn't do this for an award. I didn't do it for attention. I did it because it was essential to do. And I said, I know you didn't do it for award, but what you've done is you've tapped into the souls of everyone I sent that video today to. And next year, I would like to bring you on stage and award you. So who knows where my work will go next, what my aims will be. My issues are always around women and children and the safety. I don't know. The moment when your sensing organs for a moral good are on high alert and you can't stand the hypocrisy any longer or the blindness and your move to action, where the pain of seeing it moves you to action, that seems to be the, the heart of being an artist. It feels to me like you can't not say anything and not do anything and you're out there and you're taking action and people are inspired. Most people numb out. I feel, Sana, most people numb out when they see that and they think of the problem as being too big for them to handle. And, and so they do nothing instead of just taking the one small step that says, I can do this. I might not be able to solve the structural issues that have caused this, but I can help this person in front of me. Yes. Can you tell me what NSICA stands for? The National Conference for the Education of Ceramic Arts. Every year in a different state. And next year it'll be in Cincinnati. So what I'm going to do is research Cincinnati, see what the homeless situation is there. And next year, there should be 6,000 of us if the pandemic is quiet. So NSICA must do something. I am going to start something some way. Good trouble, as John Lewis said. I'm going to start something that every state we're in, we don't just come for four days and shop and bar hop and look at art and have a good time, that we leave something behind besides our beautiful pottery and sculpture that changes a life. We cannot go to states that are suffering from huge populations and do nothing for the four days we're going to be there. Good trouble. Beautiful, good woman giving back. Thank you so much, Sana. I look forward to meeting you in person. Me too. You're very welcome. You know that I've been a yogi for a long time, and in yoga practice, we're told that there are things that you can do and things that are gifts. So in meditation, for example, you can sit on a cushion, and you can do your breathing practice, and you can focus on your third eye point. 
But whether the state of meditation arises is not really up to you. It comes or it doesn't. Similarly, in doing good things in the world, there are things you can do. You can love your fellow neighbor. You can give them some money. You can give them some kindness. You can go to meetings in your town and try to create structural change in your community. You can make art that draws people's attention to things that are unjust and moves them at the soul level so that more people are activating and bringing about change. These are things we can do. Whether or not social reforms happen are more world emergent. They may or may not arise. It's not really within our scope of control individually. But hopefully you, like me, have been inspired by Sana and her work to do one thing today that you might not have otherwise done to make a difference creating a more just and beautiful world. Because if it's a more beautiful one for one person, then it's a more just and beautiful one for all of us. More joy, less suffering. That's the motto we have come up with over at Rosebud Woman, and I think it kind of applies to all of life. So thank you for joining today, and I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful day making whatever you're making. If you enjoyed this episode, please pause and text it to someone who might benefit from listening to it. If you have a minute in your busy, busy day, maybe you're stuck in line somewhere or on hold with customer service, please go over and give a review for the Rose Woman podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you haven't already subscribed, subscribe. I really appreciate your support of this program and all of the ideas that we're sharing, all of the people who we give a platform to to tell their story, and I hope to continue doing so. I love your reviews and feedback. Peace, love, blessings, wherever you are today. See you next time.